from Second Peter chapter three, verses one to fifteen. The day of the Lord, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements with melt will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. The second part of scripture that I'm reading today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Verses 1 to 11. Everything is meaningless. The words of the teacher, the son, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, 
there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Thank you for that reading. Um, yeah, so today I'm going to be looking at the value of work. How about I pray uh, before, before I start? Uh, Lord God, uh, as we unpack your word uh, from Genesis uh, through to Revelation, we pray, Lord, that um, yeah, we can see something of your great design uh, in the value of work, uh, even as it stands broken today. We pray that whatever our context, be it uh, paid work or ministry work or volunteer work or even as a student we pray that um, yeah it would show how what we do in the rest of our week uh, is still connected and deeply uh, um, deeply valued by you in Jesus name we pray amen so I wonder um, if any of you guys have heard about this phenomenon called the great resignation um, it's a movement that actually happened uh, in the middle of the pandemic back in 2021 uh, where in the middle of a global pandemic, instead of hanging on to job security, people started to actually quit their jobs en masse. Yep. So instead of seeking onto security, people started to be letting go of that in the middle of the pandemic. Since then, we've seen similar things as well. There's this phenomenon called um, quiet quitting, yep, where people are staying kind of paid and kind of employed, but are only doing the bare minimum according to their job description. Yep. I wonder what's behind some of these trends. And I think what the pandemic has helped us to do, it's really disrupted um, what we think about work. Not simply just how we work, but importantly, why we work. And behind the great resignation, behind things like quiet quitting, people are then reconsidering what their priorities are in life. Uh, what they value, and therefore how work fits in with some of those values, if that makes sense. And that brings us to really what I wanted to chat with you guys today about, which is the value of work. Now, this kicked off before the pandemic. One of my mates on, uh, wrote on LinkedIn. Uh, she wrote, although people have obvious financial needs that are a large part of what makes them seek employment, the money side of work doesn't go far in making a job feel like something worth doing. It won't make up for a job that's frustrating, boring, inconsequential, or just dull. People want more from their work. They want to be able to at least meet some of their other desires for good social contact or a sense of achievement, uh, a feeling they're doing something worthwhile. It's actually a lot that we actually start placing onto work and I think the pandemic just accelerated all of that. Our parents, my parents, probably find this sort of talk a little bit rose-tinted, a little bit naive. Work is for financial security, is what mum would tell me. 
Um, but I think some, of, one, some part of us can't help but resonate with it a little bit. Especially in recent history, we've got this opportunity uh, to choose what we do for our work. We've, and for a lot of us, we've had that expectation drilled into us since primary school. More than ever, we want work to be not just about money, but about meaning. People want to find value in their work. As human beings, it seems like this, you know, it's something that we're searching for. How can work be more valuable? How can I enjoy the work that I do? And how can my work be something that matters as well? But as a Christian then, what's that mean for us? Because we're hearing a lot of this stuff from the world. What does make work valuable? What makes it worth doing or not worth doing? Is the value of work any different for us as a Christian? Should we even, should we even be trying to seek out value in our work in the first place? Or is that, is that more of a worldly idea? Well, today we're going to unpack the Bible pretty rapid fire uh, to look at two different ways, maybe, that the Bible does say, yes, there is value uh, in our work, and look to see how the Bible can resonate with that longing for us, but also subvert things a little bit and gives us ultimately what I think is a bigger, more fulfilling picture, a more hopeful answer uh, for value in our work. So two ways that I'm going to be looking at. The first way is... Uh, by finding work that feels good, work that feels good. Often, it doesn't feel good. You know, it feels frustrating, it feels boring, it feels exhausting. But amidst all that, I think many of us have those rare glimpses, those rare moments where you get into a rhythm, you, know, you get into flow, you're in the zone, you're kicking goals, you're crushing it. And work suddenly starts feeling good. And once you get a taste of that, you want that in all of your work. So that's one way. Work that feels good. The second way that I think we want value for work is work that matters. Work that matters in some way. That feels per Often work doesn't feel that way. It feels purposeless, unfulfilling. Uh, you pour, pour sweat and blood into it and it feels meaningless, no lasting value. But there's those rare moments where, you know, what we did made a difference. What we did seemed to matter. We get some sort of fulfillment as we contribute back, maybe to our customer, to our team, to broader society as a whole, to make something of a better world. Work that matters. So those are the two ways. Work that feels good and work that matters. And we'll be unpacking a bit of that. Now, obviously, they're related, but I'm going to treat them a little bit differently because I think you can enjoy work that's ultimately not really meaningful. Yep. I've been in many teams which are really fun, a great work culture, uh, voice filter, the challenging problems, but it could be you know, very trivial, the type of work that you're doing, or temporary, or even ethically questionable. I'm a massive movie film guy. I love watching a good heist or crime movie. Yep, they're clicking, like Ocean's Eleven. Yeah? That's, everything's gelling, they're having fun but they're kind of robbing people, so, you know, <laughs> it's not the most <laughs> meaningful type of work. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, work can be incredibly meaningful. It could matter so much, but be really frustrating, really boring. Uh, Steve Jobs was the late founder of uh, Apple, 
And he famously said, famously said he wanted to put a ding in the universe. But we also know that all those iPhones got made in a Chinese factory where, you know, I'm sure that they didn't feel particularly full of joy in their putting a ding in the universe as they were assembling all of those phones. I think something closer to home, actually in my home, just ask anyone who's ever been a parent, ask your parents, yep, it's some of the most fulfilling, uh, most fulfilling work, work that truly matters. You're literally raising up this next generation. But as my wife said, uh, I can feel my brain cells dying, I need to get out. Work that's incredibly important, but not the most enjoyable always. I'm sure you were all lovely as kids. Yep. So, so you can see how you can have one uh, without the other. Um, and I think the Bible speaks uniquely to both of those truths about our work. Um, and I want to unpack some of that today. So let's get into that now. Uh, what's the Bible have to say about uh, our work? Um, so firstly, let's look at work that feels good. Yep. In the mid-70s, uh, psychology uh, published this term. Uh, they coined this idea called flow. Yep. Some of you might have heard about it. Uh, flow is, according to Wikipedia, a mental state in which a person performing some activity is fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement and enjoyment in the process of some work. You've probably experienced it yourself. Maybe when you're playing sport and you're on fire. When you're making something, when you make some sort of art and it just flows through you. When you're immersed in solving some sort of problem. You're in the zone and you lose all sense of time. It's euphoric. It's the kind of that edge where high challenge meets high skill. Yeah? Often we talk about it in terms of play, almost, not just work. See, I wonder if this feeling is kind of a taste, a bit of a glimpse of what it means when we're working according to how we were designed to work. Because yep. work isn't just a recent phenomenon. It's, you know, it's changed a lot through human history, but the Bible says, actually, work predates history, and it's part of the created order of things itself. So, like a well-oiled machine, we work best when we're working as we're designed. So then we look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. From the very beginning, we see that work is actually part of God's natural order, part of how we were created and designed. In Genesis 1, 28, we hear that God blesses the man and woman and tells them to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature to fill the earth and rule over it. And see how after six days of creation, we're invited in as people to continue with what he first made, made in the image of a creator God, to be co-creating with him. And that's that work we find in Genesis 2 isn't just filling and ruling. It's not just domination, but an act of stewardship. So in the garden we read in chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it. To work the garden. 
to take care of it. So we're described there as gardeners of God's creation, to tend to it, to water it, to nurture it, to enjoy its fruit. Maybe that's why so many people, when they decide to retire, they take up gardening, yeah? the true type of work, because it's part of God's created plan, part of his created order. And work feels good. I think it still feels best when it's part of his good creation, working for the good of others, working for the good of creation, as we were designed. We, we know that if we turn the page again, you hit Genesis 3. We see the fall. And part of where we know that, God, that, that work is so important to God's creation is that it's part of what explicitly gets cursed in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we read, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. Work, sleep, repeat. That sounds a lot like the factory life of modern work. And like rust in the machine, we know that work feels bad because sin pervades the machine. Sin pervades creation. But unlike the world then, as Christians, we shouldn't expect work to always feel good. Chasing after that becomes idolatry, putting creation over the creator. But since the fall, work is often painful and sweaty toil. But even though work is cursed, work itself, uh, work itself, that does, doesn't mean that work itself is the curse. It still remains part of the original creation and so it retains its value. So as Christians then, we can recognize some of this design, celebrate some of those things where it's working against the effect of sin, good work conditions, fair work practices, weeding the garden, as it were. Or we can also recognize and give thanks for, gar for gardening that produces fruit, uh, the current desire for sustainability or inclusion. Maybe they stem from an inherent desire for the good of creation and the good of people. So I guess that's the key takeaway for the first part here is when work feels good, we should, we should thank God, even if it's rare. It's not something separate from our faith. It's actually part of how God made us. And we get a glimpse if we flick through to the very end of the Bible, into the book of Revelation, what that ultimate fulfillment looks like. God brings about a new heaven and a new earth, and that's our final destination. Revelation 22 describes a new earth. Jesus sits enthroned in a restored Eden. The garden where God first placed man is now at the heart of this enormous city. So maybe it's a small amendment there. Because I think we can say the value of our work feels good because it's part of God's good design. And that's true for everyone. But then as Christians, for us, when work doesn't feel that way, when we're not in flow, we know it's from the fall, but we also have an assurance of future hope for ourselves as well. When God brings all things uh, back unto him. Which I guess brings us to our second point. Work's part of God's design, and it feels good when it's in line with that design. But, and it's a big but, even if work feels good, even if it's in line with God's order, does it really matter? 
if Jesus, if we're looking forward to Revelation, to when Jesus returns to bring it all back, does it really matter? It's an accusation that lots of Christians actually face. We're so busy dreaming about the next world that we've never learned to live in this one. And it's actually the source of what we're looking at here in 2 Peter 3 verse 13 today. So it looks to this new heavens and new earth, but it describes its coming in this way. It describes in 2 Peter 3.10 that the coming of this new creation seems to be through fire. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So the question that comes up is, how can our work really matter if it all just burns in the end? What difference does any of it make? One of my favorite poems is uh, a poem called Ozymandias. Um, if you're a Breaking Bad fan, look up Brian Cranston's reading of this, because it's much better than mine. Yep. So Ozymandias goes like this. <coughs> I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the hand that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. To say the author of this poem, Percy Shelley, was inspired by a broken statue of Ramesses II, known as Ozymandias. <clears throat> he was the greatest and most celebrated and most powerful pharaoh who ruled at the height of the Egyptian empire. But in history, despite the greatness of his works, his superior armies, his mighty empire, these colossal monuments, nothing beside remained. Can there be any value in our work, even if it does feel good according to God's design, if in the end it all crumbles, if nothing lasts, if even the greatest works will come broken, fragments, forgotten to time? That's actually what we're picking up in the reading that we had from Ecclesiastes today. We follow this guy who searches for something, anything that truly matters. He looks for it in wisdom and learning. He looks for it in pleasure. He looks for it, like so many of us do, in choosing the right career, in works, in achievements, in great projects, in his legacy. And his conclusion, right up front, he says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains thereafter. 
See, the teacher says that in the shadow of eternity, trying to find true meaning of work is you might as well be chasing after the wind. Look, to be fair, he does resonate. He just chime with the first point. He admits that work can feel good, but satisfaction, and there is satisfaction and enjoyment in our toil, in our labor, but it's meaning with a lowercase m. Meaning with an uppercase m is fleeting in light of eternity. So what then? How can our work matter in light of eternity? In Christian thought, there's kind of two main answers that people wrestle with in that question. And it kind of goes to the heart of uh, 2 Peter 3.10. is one of the key verses that people look at there. Uh, the two schools are continuity and discontinuity. Yep, so does what we do keep going or does it all just stop? Yep. And you can hear it in 2 Peter 3.10. It goes, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So one answer, the discontinuity camp, the camp that says everything will stop, just quite, you know, basically points to this passage and says, look, there's a destroying fire. So yes, your work is worth absolutely nothing in light of eternity. Only souls last into eternity so unless your work is focused on saving souls, your work is as useful as rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Maybe not something that your career counsellor will say. There's another school, though, that says, no, 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 you need to look closer. Look at this part that says, no, 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 the, um, the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Everything done is laid bare. It's not a destroying fire. It's a refining fire. This is the continuity camp that says the good that we do in life echoes into eternity. That includes some of our good work. Because God is renewing all things, then our work in some way contributes to the building of God's new heaven and new earth. You can see the tension, yeah? So those are the two answers often in Christian thought, continuity and discontinuity. On the one hand, only souls survive into eternity, so good work matters because it contributes to good gospel work. But on the other hand, all good work, uh, on the other hand, the continuity camp says all good work matters because work done in the Lord echoes in some way in eternity. You can see the challenge for, you know, whether your work matters. And for a lot of people, this is a bit of a hot topic, Yep. Uh, you can see, you know, Christian Bible nerd people. Um, you can see how, right? It's um, at face value whether or not your everyday work lasts into eternity seems like it's probably the thing that should shape our attitudes towards the value of your work. The thing that should shape the type of work that you do. Continuity or discontinuity? Does work continue, or does it all burn? Surely that changes some of our life choices about work. But after 20 years working across a mix of ministry and so-called secular work, I'm not convinced it actually makes a heap of difference in practice. From what I've seen, workers who prioritize gospel work, evangelism, for example, also have to do good work. Deeds and character matter 
Believing in Christ means being transformed by Christ. And that's in our working life as well. Otherwise, sharing of the gospel means people see you as manipulative as best or a hypocritical jerk at worst. On the other hand, workers who pursue good in their work still recognize that in the end, only Christ truly satisfies. They recognize that without Jesus, career is simply idolatry. Work that feels good still pales in comparison to life that is life in the full. Work is good, but Jesus is what we need. See, continuity or discontinuity, annihilation or purification, faith in action in our everyday work looks awfully similar. And I think it's that insight that we see from our lived experience of faith that actually points to a third way to think about some of these things. And I actually think this is what Peter's actually unpacking here in, in his letter. Because I don't think the New Testament doesn't pin the New Testament doesn't pin the value of our work, what we do, on whether or not it lasts into eternity. That's actually more of a worldly logic that we've superimposed onto our work. A modern cause and effect mindset that says, well, what matters today is driven by what makes the most impact tomorrow. But if you look at to Peter, uh, he actually unpacks a bit of a spiritual logic to this equation. Before he goes on and talks about, in chapter 3, this new heaven and new earth, in the first chapter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he addresses his readers in this way. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, he, Jesus, has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. And what I want you to notice there in, in, that, in that snippet is the language there subverts maybe some of our expectations. Because the language he's using isn't a future tense type language but a past and actually a present tense language. Through Jesus, his readers have already received faith. So they are to participate in the present tense in Jesus' divine nature. They've already escaped the corruption of the world and are free to live it out. So where the two views of Christian thought see eternity as something only in the future... There's this sense in, in the spiritual logic of Peter that says, quite radically, um, new creation is something that's already here, in and through those who have received faith in Christ. Elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, elsewhere the New Testament describes Christians as present citizens of a future heavenly kingdom. Kingdom. In a sense, we're kind of time travellers, ambassadors from that future kingdom, living and breathing today. And in light of eternity, Peter is calling us to act like citizens from that world, growing in grace and knowledge of Christ by being who we already are in Christ, here and now, today, in every sphere of life, including our life at work. And that's where I think it brings meaning with a capital M, 
Work doesn't matter because it will last into the future kingdom. It matters because we're representatives of that future kingdom already. And as citizens of that future kingdom, we can, both empath- we can emphasize both our gospel work and our everyday work. We don't have to trade one off against the other. Both come from being who we are in the Lord. So we can emphasize our gospel work, evangelism, for example, not just because souls last forever. Rather, it's an inescapable thing. Elsewhere, Peter describes Christians as foreigners living in a strange land. Where God has placed you through each week, then, is where those kingdoms collide. It's an encounter point between the kingdom of God and our present secular post-church world is what's happening in our everyday spheres, where we're rubbing shoulders alongside Christians, uh, alongside non-Christians, they're rubbing shoulders, in a sense, with eternity. Conversely, we're moved to do everyday good work, not just because our work might last through some fire, but because we're working as if we're working as part of God's future kingdom. We work as if we're working for the Lord, making good work in the work itself, ministering grace and love to people we meet, moulding culture through art and justice and innovation. Our work matters not just because it might last, but because it's a present reflection of that future kingdom. Through our good work, we are salt that gives a foretaste of that new kingdom. We're light that reflects the glory of that future king. So I honestly don't know uh, whether or not our work will be annihilated or purified, but I know that in a sense the kingdom of God is already here through us, including through our everyday work. And I think that's why it matters. Our work matters because it's that act of worship that we can do in church, yes, but also into the rest of our lives. Because in the end, it is all about Him. That's when there's value in our work. Work feels good then when it's aligned with God's good design. And work matters most when it's done for the Lord, when it's done as a reflection of that future kingdom where kingdoms collide today. And work like that is valuable for our good, it's valuable for God's glory, and work like that, I think, is start of mission and start of evangelism, because it's, val- it's that valuable for good of others as well, so that they too might see and glorify the Lord when he returns. How about I pray? Lord God, we thank you that work is part of your good design for our good, for your glory. Even though it can be hard toil because of our sin, we pray that we pray that we might reflect deeply on what what it looks like to thank you and worship you in all of our work situations, paid or voluntary, study or church ministry or in our homes and families. And we pray, Lord, that, yeah, our work could be an act of worship to you as we live out our everyday lives as citizens of your future kingdom. 
Lord God, and as we do some of this, we pray that as kingdoms collide, that those around us who are yet to know you might get a glimpse of that future kingdom and a glimpse of our King and come to know you as their own Lord and Saviour. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up.